This is Existential, the podcast that reminds us that we're human first before we're anything else. And from that place, we can hear each other's stories and experiences as we wrestle with issues of justice, faith, and culture. I'm your host, Corey Leak. Thanks for listening. Hello there. Welcome to episode 40 of Existential um, Existential today has reached the big 4-0, <laughs> and I want to thank all of you all over the world who listen to this podcast and share this podcast with your friends um, who who have, I've seen so many different people saying that they're learning and growing, and, and, and the impact that this podcast is having on them is just truly humbling to me because I never imagined, I guess, that that would be the result. I mean, we're, we're approaching 22,000 downloads, which I'm just thrilled, thrilled to be the host of this podcast and see it have the effect that it's having. So thank you to all of you. Seriously, thank you so much. Those of you listening right now, thank you. Those of you who, who have subscribed and rated and reviewed, thank you so much to all of you for all you've done to help make existential what it is. You are legitimately helping us to contend for a better world, especially those of you who are part of our Patreon community. So thank you to all of you. So saying that up front, thank you. This is the 40th episode, and I am so excited to be recording it. I'm back from vacation. Uh, last week we were uh, we did a socially distant, responsible vacation. I'm not one of these uh, evangelical, non-mask-wearing dummies. Did I say dummies? I'm sorry. I, I want to be less judgmental, more caring and compassionate. So... Let me take back that I said dummies. But I'm not one of these evangelicals, nor is my family who goes out um, and is irresponsible to the people around us by not wearing a mask, by not keeping our distance. In fact, I'm, I feel bad sometimes. Like I, I lean away from people on purpose when they don't have a mask and they're trying to talk to me. Um, you know, I, I, I distance myself from people. So, I mean, you know trying to do our part. COVID's still a thing. It's real. A couple friends of mine actually over the last couple weeks have have gotten tested because they thought they might have had it. So it's a thing. And it's a thing we should all be, you know, aware of and not be dumb about. So we did a socially distanced, responsible vacation. I know some folks may even think that vacationing at all is is irresponsible. Hey, I have an 18-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 15-year-old daughter, 14-year-old daughter, and we don't have many of these left. So, you know, I just, we felt like we needed to do it. It was important. We had a great time. And in the midst of being away, though, I missed a lot of stuff that was going on in the world. Um, and a lot of it is, of course, anti-black, which should be no surprise. It should be no surprise that if I, if you unplug for a week and you come back, some of the same old stuff is happening, right? If you were to to go away and unplug as I, as I did and, and come back from that unplugging and ask, hey, what went on while I was gone? If people listed a bunch of things, if, if those things listed, certainly as, as Americans, if those things that are listed don't have anti-black sentiments in what's going on in the world, then, I mean, I guess you should just rejoice because a miracle has happened. And... You know, things have changed. The the age to come that we are all looking for and, and expecting and, and spe- certainly people of faith are like, 
have their necks outstretched for has come upon us and the world's changed. But that's actually not where we are today. So I wasn't shocked to come back to questions of Kamala Harris's um, citizenship, the birtherism stuff. What a shocker that another candidate, another black candidate, has these questions brought up about where are you from? Because you are, you when you have dark skin in America, you are in essence a visitor, All right? So, so this this is what comes out, right? This is the things that we've been talking about, things that we've been saying. It's not like it's new. So from that place of you're a guest here, where are you from? How did you get here? It's the same questions that are asked of black folks that walk through neighborhoods like Trayvon Martin walking through a neighborhood this the question of you don't belong here where are you from where'd you come from what are you up to the police driving up to black folks that are walking in their own neighborhoods minding their own business asking them questions where are you going I mean this is not this has been here forever and I think from time to time people in America need a history lesson like they need to be reminded of the history of how America has been anti-black since it started. Because we don't hear about this stuff in school. Like our, our, our education system does not teach us about people like Ida B. Wells. We don't learn about the we charge genocide that the African Americans brought to the UN in 1951. Like we don't learn those things. We hear about those things later on in documentaries from, and from people like Brian Stevenson. Like we, we hear about those things later on as we, in adulthood, but we don't learn them in school, or at least we didn't learn them in school, and, hope, and now I'm hearing that some of that stuff is changing, but we didn't hear about this stuff when I was growing up in school. And so naturally, as you grow up in a society that champions itself as the world's savior and as the morally uh, authoritative, well, maybe that's not the way to say that, but as the, as the moral police, right? America has positioned itself as the people who go and fix other people's problems in other parts of the world because we have our shit together. That is, how, that is what America's been. It's how we wind up in wars. It's how we wind up... Um, critiquing other nations and the way that they do things. It's how we establish our heroes and our villains. It's how we've created this boogeyman out of socialism and, and communism and Marxism when most of us, if we're being brutally honest, have not done in-depth study of any of those things. I know I, I certainly have. I won't, I won't sit here and act as if I've done in-depth study into Marxism or communism. What I do know is that as I've been saying for the last several weeks, communists were very friendly to Americans back in the night, or to black, I should say, black Americans back in the fifties and sixties. So as like, <laughs> as I as I come back from vacation and I look at like what's happening with Kamala Harris, duh, of course it is. When I hear people starting to ask, where is the outrage for? the tragic death of the five-year-old white boy at the hands of, of a black man. And I start to come back and hear people saying of this little boy, say his name, and white lives matter. And, I, and, and asking black folks 
who have been outspoken about injustices to now shift their attention to this incident. I want to be very careful as I talk about this not to um, dishonor this boy who's who died tragically or his family. So I'm not going so I'm going to be very careful as I communicate about this, but I do want to share the truth about why this sentiment and people who are very wickedly using this tragedy to further their anti-black ideas is such an awful, terrible thing. It's the same reason that I was furious about she who we don't speak of calling George Floyd a criminal after he was dead before we had even had a chance to memorialize the man at a funeral, before his family had a chance to memorialize him, we were, she who we don't speak of was, was, was traipsing out his, his criminal record, defaming him and, and trying to take the halo off that had sparked worldwide outcries for justice for black people. Now here is why I think it's important that we remember our history, especially when people want to start shouting about where's your outright outrage over a white, a young white boy being killed. America has not traditionally treated white people poorly. I, I, don't, I don't even know why that needs to be said, but I guess for some people it needs to be said because they treat the the movement for black lives as if it's a trend. As if this has not been something that people have been fighting for since the abolition of slavery, since, well, since with abolitionists who were fighting for the abolition of slavery. And then once the abolition of slavery happens, we have the rise of the Ku Klux Klan and other organizations that were anti-black and that were lynching black people. In fact, Ida B. Wells declared that 10,000 black people, as of the start of the 20th century, had been executed, lynched, killed, and only three suspects had been brought to justice. Ida B. Wells, back in the late 1800s, was was a part of the movement for black lives. Moving into the night into the 20th century, we had the civil rights movement. We have always had a movement for black lives in this country because there's always been oppression facing black people. So when you start to raise issues over not minimal, I'm not going to minimize, minimize, minimize. I'm not going to minimize the tragedy. When you have a tragedy that takes place, like what happened with this little white kid, it's awful. But let's not try to compare that to hundreds of years of systematic oppression and death dealing to black folks. As I said, in 1951, which I just read about in uh, Dolores Williams' incredible book called Sisters in the Wilderness, which is a book that if you want to pick it up and read it, I recommend everyone do. She cites the 1951 petition that African Americans brought to the UN 
And that petition that they brought to the UN in 1951, entitled We Charge Genocide, was basically telling the world that America should be held responsible for the way that they are treating black folks. Because genocide would include the killing of black bodies, check. The psychological impact on a, a group of people, check. The disproportionate distribution of wealth and health and wellness, check. All of those things, if you look up what genocide actually is, fall in line with genocide. So it was a charge brought to the UN telling the entire world that the way black folks are treated in this country is criminal. Now, of course, nothing was done about it. It was ignored. What I find interesting, though, is that America, as Americans, we uh, have always prided ourselves on policing the world's affairs. If there's a genocide happening in another country, we are quick to, to, to um, condemn it and speak about the uh, people responsible for that genocide as evil dictators. We are very quick to declare ourselves the moral authorities, the moral authority throughout the world, the, the people, the country that will show up to make things right. When in our own country, we've yet to really make it right. In fact, this morning I was reading an article about the richest countries in the world from workandmoney.com that was ranking the 50 wealthiest countries in the world. Combined average income, gross domestic product, and the social, what they call the social progress index to rank the richest countries in the world. America came in third when you combine all those, uh, those things, even though in terms of gross domestic product, America's number one. America is high, I think, top two in, um, in, in income, average income. But where America scored very low still to this day in 2020 was in the SPI. And America ranks amongst the best in shelter, water, and sanitation, medical care, and personal rights. Because God knows that here in America, we are a country that is uh, very sensitive to our rights, which as, as we should be. And I think sometimes we actually even take it overboard when it comes to wearing a mask. People don't want to wear a mask because they don't want their rights infringed upon. So they feel like because of our rights, our personal rights, we, are, we, are, we, <laughs> we will fight to make sure we don't have to wear a mask. But America fell short in inclusiveness, health and wellness, and in personal safety. And I want to cite that we fell short in America in inclusiveness still in 2020. And the reason that we fall short in inclusiveness is because America, as we have been saying, black folks have been saying since we've been here, is anti-black. And this statement that I'm making about America being anti-black sometimes comes across as like a, you know, like it's a, it's a, it's a new revelation or to some people it strikes them hard and they're shocked by it. But the reality is, 
is that it was designed that way, which we've talked about. And like I said, from time to time, people need to be reminded of these things that like we, this country was founded to be anti-black. Like it's, it's not like, it's not like it just, anti-blackness just showed up in the last, you know, couple years or, or just showed up post Trayvon Martin. America was founded to be anti-black and it continues to be that way to this day. This whole U.S. Postal Service situation is an anti-black situation. Black folks who are living in poverty, which there was another 2015 study that showed that people who grow up poor tend to stay that way. If you are raised in a poor neighborhood, if you are raised... With, with, when you, with whatever your parents' net income is, the overwhelming majority of people in this country stay at that income level. It is somewhat mythical that people can rise from the slums, can rise from um, poor economic conditions to be wealthy. It's miraculous, actually, for people who grow up in very poor communities to even make it to the middle class. My, in the community that I live in, my daughters received awards because they were black and because their GPA was higher than like 2.5. My kids spent a lot of time in the 4.0, 3.5, 3.8 area, but they were considered exceptional because they were black and they had GPAs above 2.5. What does that tell you about a country? Like, what does that tell you about America? That like we are trying to crawl our way out of a society that has been committing genocide against black folks from day one. So how dare anyone have the audacity to come to people who have been the victims of genocide and say, where's your outrage for this thing or the other thing? I've seen reports questioning where's the outrage, where's the media coverage of the murder of a black Republican? Again, people treating the movement for black lives like it's a trend, like it's a political party, like it's like holding it up to this moral lens to say, ah, oh, we knew you were full of shit because now you're not outraged about this white kid that was killed. You're not outraged about this black cop who killed a white person. Like, we're not, com there's no comparison here. When you view it through the lens of history, now I'm not a historian. I've just done some reading, and in and, and doing the reading, reading about the things that happened and things that were said. Like the Dred Scott case that proclaimed that the Negro has no rights a white person is bound to respect. Or the white Klansman who was being hung for murdering his wife who said, I don't mind being hung, I just don't want a damn nigger to see me. Like, these are things that are part of our history. Things that we can't ignore. Things that we can't act like they didn't happen. Things like we can't treat like they're not a part of the foundation for how we view, or how, I shouldn't say we, how America views blackness. 
So it's pretty obvious that if you look at this entire situation through the lens of history, there is no argument against the movement for black lives. There is no moral, ethical, sustainable rebuttal to statements like Black Lives Matter. Now all of a sudden, when people want to march out terms like All Lives Matter or Blue Lives Matter, those are completely illegitimate rebuttals to Black Lives Mattering. Because historically, we've never been talking about blue lives. Historically, we've not been talking about all lives. You find me a period in history in America where white folks have been systematically oppressed. And then we can have a conversation about where our, where our, where our outrage is over incidents where white people are victims of violence. You stack up the bodies of black folks who have suffered violently due to anti-black sentiment next to the bodies of white, white, next to the white bodies that suffered anti-white sentiment. And it's an embarrassing comparison. It's not, it's, it's preposterous to even think about. Yet we still have people asking where the outrage is. We don't have an unlimited supply of outrage. The amount of anti-black violence, the amount of anti-black sentiment, the amount of anti-black institutionalized oppression that we deal with on a daily basis is taking up all of our outrage. So no, we don't have outrage left for other things. We can show empathy. And black folks aren't animals. We understand where there's a tragedy that takes place. The president's brother dying is a tragedy. It's sad. But that doesn't negate the fact or that doesn't mean that now we have to stop progress and now we need to stop pushing and crying out and speaking up and protesting and, and, and writing and preaching and podcasting about black lives because other tragedies have happened along the way. Awful things and great things are always happening in the world. It's part of being alive. There's always something to celebrate and something to mourn. My dad um, died around four years ago now. We had his funeral on February 13th, which was the same day that uh, there was a funeral for someone else in the town where my dad was a pastor. It was the same day that we had the funeral for those, my dad's funeral, funeral and another public figure from the small town that we lived in was the same day. And we were mindful of the fact that there was another tragic situation. In fact, there were some people who attended both funerals, parts of both funerals. But at what didn't happen was people at the funeral down the road from my dad's funeral 
shaming the people in that room for memorializing their dad, their husband, their uncle, their brother, their nephew, for them not being equally as sad about my dad's dying and vice versa. I didn't feel an, inch, an, an, an ounce, I don't even know what an inch is. It's probably less than an ounce, so I didn't feel an inch either. I didn't feel either one of those things. I didn't feel a, a, the slightest bit of, of shame or guilt for not mentioning the name of the person who passed. To this day, I don't remember who it was, to be honest, because that day for me was about my dad. And anybody who would have tried to make me feel guilty for not bearing the same amount of grief for someone else who was having a funeral the same day, we would have said, I don't even know what we would have said to a person like that. I don't, I don't know what words we would have used to describe a person who would have had the audacity to say, you know, you know there's other funerals happening today. You should, where's, your, where's your sadness for that? Karen, if you don't get the f out of this, like that's, I guess that's, I guess that's what we would have said. The spirit of Karen that entered whoever that person was who said some mess like that to somebody at a funeral, we would have just had to say, Karen, just get the f out of here. And that's the same thing we need to say to folks who are saying, where is your outrage over blah, 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 blah to black folks? We don't have to have the same outrage when we're talking about hundreds of years of struggle, hundreds of years of progress, only to have there be resistance to that progress. Yes, there was a Dr. Martin Luther King. But he was assassinated by the state. Yes, there was a Barack Obama. But following Barack Obama was the most vengeful political act probably in history that we put into the White House the complete antithesis of Barack Obama. Now, I'm not talking about policies. I'm talking about the person. I'm talking about America being tired of Barack Obama, seeing a black president, the things that they said about Michelle Obama, comparing her to an ape, to now having this president who, again, because people need to be reminded of history, said that African countries were shithole countries, said that Mexicans were rapists and drug lords, said that the people in Charlottesville who marched the streets with tiki torches screaming, Jews will not replace us, that there were good people in that crowd, who most recently, I'm going to paraphrase, said, hey, those of you who are enjoying your suburban neighborhood. Now, mind you, if, if you just go do a casual Google search and see who lives in the suburbs, you'll see that that's a predominantly white and certainly non-black crowd. But those of you who live in the suburbs, you won't have to worry about your property values or your safety because I'm no longer going to allow there to be low-income housing built in your beautiful suburban world. Again, a casual Google search will reveal to you who lives in low-income housing. As Trevor, Trevor Noah said, that's not even a dog whistle. You know, I think part of the reason 
why these history lessons are important, even though, again, I'm you know, probably the worst history teacher you'll ever have. Um, if you don't, actually, if you're not following or not connected yet with Letty Shoemate, who we had on the podcast on uh, Juneteenth, you should connect with her or listen to, certainly listen to the episode that we recorded with her. She's a historian, so she'll probably help you understand history a lot better than I am. But even this casual history lesson should should be enough for you to understand <laughs> why black folks have to reserve our rage. But here's what I, I, I thought about this before I recorded this, and I'm going to be done talking to you because I just have just said, hey, I'm going to hit record and I'm going to share everything that I've been thinking about over the last couple of days since I was on vacation last week and missed out on a lot of stuff. So I'm chiming in now. I was thinking about, like, how it is and how hard it must be for white folks to stare into the history of their ancestry and how brutally violent and evil and wickedly they treated um, indigenous people in America and the Africans they brought over for chattel slavery. And I thought about this story, one of the stories of Jesus' execution and trial. In one of them, the character Pilate becomes like this sympathetic figure where you almost feel bad for him because he keeps trying to get the Jews to let Jesus go because he's like, I don't see anything wrong with him. And then Pilate does this thing, this ceremonial thing from ancient times where he washes his hands of Jesus' blood, symbolically saying, I'm not responsible for what you guys do to him. And I think sometimes in America, I, I find white people finding new ways of washing their hands ceremonially of the blood of black Americans. I'm not responsible for George Floyd. I'm not responsible for uh, Trayvon Martin. I'm not responsible for Breonna Taylor. I'm not responsible for a Tatiana Jefferson. Like the, this, this hand washing and, and, and the way that shows up is in a couple of ways. One is like this overwhelming white guilt where it's like, woe is me, I'm scum of the earth and I'm just so sorry all the time, which can be honestly uh, draining on black folks. Like to be in scenarios where we are now having to comfort you because you feel so bad about what your ancestors did is just, you know, that's that hand-washing is no good. It's harmful. So try to avoid that if you can. Well, not if you can. Just do avoid it. And if, you, if, you, if you're having trouble avoiding it, find a therapist. And the other way is to swing the pendulum way over to the other side where you just are angry at black folks for bringing it up. And so when black folks bringing up that Black Lives Matter, you find a way through another tragedy to wash your hands of the guilt. Say, see, everybody's responsible for violence. Everyone does violent things. It's not just white people. Again, Pilate washing his hands. You guys hear that? That's me washing my hands. Washing his hands of the blood of this Jewish rabbi that he 
was going to put to death. You can't wash the blood off of your hands ceremonially. The only way Pilate could have washed the blood off of his hands would have been to not sign the order or not give the order for Jesus to be crucified. The only way that you as white folks can wash the blood off of your hands is by participating in anti-racist activity. It's not through apologizing. It's not through simply posting things on the internet. And it's certainly not through trying to accuse black folks of being every bit as guilty as white folks. Trying to say that that black folks are are racist also and black folks commit violence also. We're not talking about uh, hatred and violence. We're talking about systematic, historic, deeply rooted anti-blackness that history has revealed to us over and over and over again. So the only way you wash your hands of that, folks, is by pulling your sleeves up, involving yourself in in some way repairing what was broken, if that is a financial reparation, that's a thing that you can do. We've talked about this many times. In fact, there's an episode with Tori Williams Douglas that you can listen to where we talk about ways that people can participate in reparations. If you want to wash your hands of the guilt, don't do it ceremoniously, ceremonially, ceremonies. Don't do it ceremonially. Roll up your sleeves and get involved in anti-racism. All right, folks, that's all I have for you on this episode, on this 40th episode of X, 40 episodes of Existential. What a freaking big deal. Thank you so much for being here for the 40th episode. I'd like to thank Comfort Fit for the 40th time, for the music that you're hearing and the song that you're hearing that's called Sorry. For the 40th time, I want to thank all of you who have subscribed to and shared, rated, and reviewed the podcast. Listen, if you have not rated or reviewed it, could you please, please, please just stop by. Um, there's like a button. There's a star. Hit it. You can hit a star to rate it. Drop a quick review. It's not hard. It'll take you maybe two, three minutes longer if you really like want to give your full expression of what you really feel about the podcast but please 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 do that if you've not done it already and certainly all of you who are part of the patreon community you rock thank you so much for being a part of that if you want to join those people who rock the link to that is in the show notes of this episode thank you thank you thank you to all of you thank you for being a part of this episode and all the episodes you've been a part of and thank you for helping us to contend for a better world together one conversation at a time.